Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We study change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we examine the most pressing issues of the day through a historical lens, helping us understand what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now. I'm Rosalind Campbell, Assistant Director of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, which hosts this podcast. Today, we're going to discuss the rise of populist authoritarian governments around the world, from the right-wing populist politics of Donald Trump to the recent return of Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel. Recent years have seen many countries choose leaders whose rhetoric is implicitly or even explicitly authoritarian. These leaders are almost invariably male, and in many cases purport to champion the common man, while the leaders themselves are a part of, and largely support, the elite wealthy classes. How are we to understand this willingness for the many to give up their power to the few, even when it may not benefit the masses in the long run? And is this really a recent phenomenon, or have we been seeing this trend in various guises for many millennia? Here to discuss the deep history of this issue, we're fortunate to have with us today Dr. Kara Cooney, who is the chair of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures Department at UCLA. Dr. Cooney is the author of several books, including When Women Ruled the World by National Geographic Press in 2018, and most recently, The Good Kings, Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt and the Modern World, also published by National Geographic Press in 2021. We're delighted to have you with us today. Welcome, Kara. Thanks so much for having me, Rose. So let's get started by talking a little bit about ancient Egyptian pharaohs. These all-powerful kings ruled over a vast and diverse landscape for thousands of years. And if we are to believe the records of ancient Egypt, it seems that these kings encountered little or no opposition internally. Can you talk to us a little bit about how Egyptian kingship worked? how these individuals came to power and retained power with so little resistance for so long. Ancient Egyptian kingship is really a wonder in, in many ways. And when working with Egyptian kingship, you want to compare it to other places in the world, contemporary places like ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Syria, um, the ancient Levant, ancient Greece or Rome, um, a little later, of course. But there, but there are other kingships to look at. And you can see that Egypt has an extraordinary continuity in terms of dynastic length, that son can follow father almost for hundreds of years for, for certain dynasties. And then you look across the way to West Asia and you see that in the Levant or in Mesopotamia or in Syria, you have kingships that are much more hard scrabble. They last 10 years. If you're lucky, there's all kinds of competition. And the more that I've compared the two, the more that I realize much of the basis for the Egyptian continuity of kingship is geographic and its geography being protected by deserts on two sides, a Mediterranean sea on the north, big giant granite boulders blocking the river to the south. You have a, a kind of protection from repeated invasions from the outside. And then because it's a riverine agriculture, not a rain-fed agriculture, you have a different kind of agricultural production that is arguably more uh, reliable than a rain-fed agriculture and more fecund 
than a rain-fed agriculture. So you're able to build up a high population level with a limited competition compared to West Asia. And I don't want to be geographically determinist. I, I understand that geographies help to form cultures, but they don't completely shape them, right? But the differences between Mesopotamia, Syria, the Levant, and Egypt are extraordinarily stark. And the best way in the Bronze Age, at least, to explain those differences is a geographic one. And so when you look at that, and then you look at the long durée of the of these kingships, these dynasties, and how they, they almost, in the mind of the people living under them, seem to go on forever, at least in the cultural memory of the people living under them, they seem to just go on ad nauseum, you get something in Egypt that you don't have in West Asia, and that would be a divine kingship that can protect itself. It can protect itself from regicides, not always, but more often than in other places. It can protect itself from all kinds of coup attempts and, and internal civil wars, not always, but often. And, and so you have this idea that the kingship is blessed by the gods. And because it continues forever, it's like a prosperity gospel that it will just continue to continue forever. And people, I think ourselves included, are drawn to this ancient Egyptian kingship because it seems so special, so blessed, so unusual. And we crave that continuity too. And so there, there's this interest in Egypt on our part, but also the Egyptians themselves, I think, knew that they had some special sort of gain going and considered themselves really the kings of the ancient world, certainly in the Bronze Age. And it wasn't until the Iron Age that they really became uh, imperialized and passed around from empire to empire as, as nothing less than a prophet. So it's interesting you talk a little bit about, um, you know, geography and divinity of the king and things like that. How would that have worked with the king as divine? Was he semi-divine? Was he wholly divine? And how did they reconcile that idea with the physical body that does indeed pass away? I mean, divine kingship is always a tricky thing, right? But it's tricky to be the pope. I mean, how do you how do you deal with being uh, the direct conduit to the to God in in the Vatican. How do you deal with being the head of the Anglican Church? Um, how do these things work? How do you live in a human body and yet you're the mouthpiece for the gods? How how is this actually working? And the Egyptians created a really ingenious system that's based on different kinds of divinity. So the gods like Amun Re or Atum or Patah of Memphis, they would be called a great god, a Netcher Aa. Whereas a king would be called a good god or a perfect god, something was that was perfected, a netcher nefer. And so you have a, an understanding that the king can become a great god upon his death, but during his lifetime and in his years upon earth, he is something in between. He is a conduit. He is there as a connection between the heavens and the earth. And the way it actually works practically is really interesting because Let's say we introduce a crisis into the system, right? So let's say you're in West Asia and the king dies unexpectedly in battle and he leaves behind a 10-year-old son. And, you know, if you're dealing with that kind of succession crisis, even if you crown the 10-year-old son, warlords will rise up and people will try to kill that 10-year-old and move him out of position. And we'll probably be able to do it rather easily because the 10-year-old doesn't have the protective abilities and cognitive abilities that an adult would have. But in Egypt, you make that 10-year-old king 
and you place a regent decision maker over that 10-year-old, everyone who is more interested in Egypt in retaining the status quo, less interested in competition, they get more from the status quo in Egypt than they do from competition. And so they're rewarded by that interest in going along with the system as we have it. So the dynasty will continue. Now you just have to create a decision maker for that young kid. And the Egyptians were clever at this as well. They understood that if they place the brother of the dead king in charge as regent, that they would bring in patriarchal competition because men are allowed to compete with men in a patriarchy. Men can raise an army. Men have a profession. Men can read and write and do all of these things. Egyptians knew this. And so they placed a woman in control as regent. More ideally, they placed the mother of the young king in control. And while she could read and write, she had no profession. She had, maybe she had a profession, but no ability to create an army, raise forces, create a coup attempt. They also created a situation in which she wouldn't necessarily want to, because not many mothers want to kill their sons. Ptolemy's accepted, perhaps. But you're creating all of these different ways of continuing the the dynasty and it's um it's it's a really useful uh this divine kingship creates a useful continuity and it can only exist arguably because you have a number of elites who are rewarded by the status quo and if you're in any other part of the world and as we move into the iron age if you go to ancient greece or italy the 10 year olds not going to last on the throne there either most places are competitive Egypt is highly unusual in that divine kingship conditions people and the geography and the farming and the the resources that are so abundant condition people to just go along with it. And, and so the kingship, the ideology replicates itself by continuing through time. That's really interesting. So I want to follow up on something that you said a moment ago about how there's these kings and it's a patriarchy, but then there's a role for these women. And so... Um, for our listeners who may not be aware, we we start to see sort of an established system of Egyptian kingship about 5,000 years ago, about 5,000 years before today. So this is a long-standing system that seems to function and, like you said, replicate itself for a long time in a pretty similar form in that with very few exceptions, um, there are a couple really notable exceptions, the ancient Egyptian rulers are almost exclusively men. And so can you talk a little bit about, in part, why this is the case, and then maybe delve a little bit into what those exceptions are and why those exceptions were allowed to happen? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. And you know what I would compare it to? I would compare it to females coming into government in a parliamentary system rather than females coming into government in a direct election system. So these females, and there are five of them who became king in the ancient Egyptian system, if we include Cleopatra, four if we do not. And they're part of this region system. And there are dozens of female regions who ruled Egypt as leader of state, though not in name. They did so informally. And these these women are there as placeholders to support a, a patriarchal system that's larger than themselves. They don't come into power and change everything into a matriarchy. They don't come into power and and become, you know, rabid feminists to change things and make things fairer. They are only there because they are not a threat to the patriarchy and can work short term to keep the system going and to link one chain to another chain and 
and to keep it going. In other parts of the world where you are, you don't have as much elite interest in maintaining that status quo, and re- elites are rewarded more through competition, overt militaristic competition, then the women have really no shot. Which is why, if you look at Greek democratia in Athens, for example, or the American uh, presidential system, for example, you see women largely shut out because the men are able to compete with each other using their greater economic and political resources and their greater perception politically, how they play the game and how they're perceived as playing the game, what their interests are. And and so you you see those other parts of the world really excluding women from power. Whereas in Egypt, as long as they kept that patriarchal train running, everything was okay. And those women were suffered for a short period of time. But it's really interesting so these women, they find power as soon as kingship is established. So 5,000 years ago, kingship is established in Egypt, and you see women there as regents in Dynasty Zero, so-called Dynasty Zero, Dynasty One, and then th- that trend continues. So there, you know, the woman, the powerful woman is, is a really important supporter of the king, but it, she rules for a short period of time max is going to be 20 some years. And then as soon as the Egyptians can reinstate the historical ideology of a pure patriarchal line of man following man, they will. And they will remove that woman from the history, from the idealized history, from the temple walls, from any of the official records. And it's only because we have Manetho preserved to us in quotations in Greek in later sources that we realize, oh, some women, female, some female rulers are mentioned and retained in the history books. But it seemed there was this alternative parallel history, like an administrative history that was kept, that was truthful, whereas the idealized history had to remove those women entirely. So even though Egypt allowed these women to rule as leader of state, they, they didn't really allow them to be a part of the history in the way that we would like. Like how many people know the name of Hatshepsut and can pronounce it and know who she was? You and I might try to rectify that, but most people don't know that. But if we go to any bus stop anywhere, everyone knows the name Cleopatra. And that's because she's the failure whose name we want to keep alive because it serves the patriarchy to remember her as a failure. Well, that leads really well into my next question, though, which is, can you talk a little bit about how we know what we know? Why do we have these parallel histories? Um, And who is controlling that narrative that we have an administrative history that maybe occasionally records some of these female rulers, but then we have a sort of official state history where they are absent, expunged, whatever. Can you talk a little bit about, um, for our readers who are not as familiar with ancient Egypt, how do we know these things from 5,000 years ago, from 3,000 years ago, et cetera? I love this question because it gets to the core of our discipline, this Egyptological discipline, which for the last hundred years, maybe 200 years, however you date the beginnings of Egyptology, has been very uh, apologist and positivist to the historical record as it's written. And my books, starting with The Woman Who Would Be King, continuing on with When Women Ruled the World, and then now with The Good Kings, is trying to subvert that ideological story as always being true. And I can't tell you how many Egyptologists come to me and say, how dare you tell a story that is not the official story that we have in the record? Who do you think you are? You're subverting the sources. And I say, how dare any of us look at an authoritarian regime, which is never going to give you all of its secrets? This is not 
a government like ancient Rome or ancient Greece, where speaking openly about your opponent and creating political takedowns and putting these unsavory details into the record is the norm. Egypt is not that place. This is not that regime. Any authoritarian regime that is ideologizing to perfection will hide any of the realpolitik, to use the, the German word, any of the cloak and dagger stuff, any of the coups, any of the the real backroom deals that are happening. They're going to hide that and they're going to say that everything is God-given. It's all happening as it's meant to, that this king was king from the egg. He was always meant to be king. And it's my duty as a historian to take those texts, those idealizing texts from the temple walls, and then start to try to decode them as best I can with the understanding that I will never know the full truth, but that this is not the full truth. That normal people act in normal, messy human ways. They fall in love. They make decisions based on emotion. They get angry. They they might invade someplace because they feel they've been put down in some way. They need to prove something. There, There's all kinds of human emotions and human agendas that can be a part of a story of ancient Egypt. And I dare say that Egyptologists fetishize these rulers, that we make them into the good kings that they want to be, these perfected men and women who didn't make mistakes, who knew the path before it was even written. And I would say that we need to take them off those fetishized pedestals and humanize them. And when I wrote the book, The Woman Who Would Be King, people were like, how dare you give emotions to Hatshepsut? And and I said, how, why not? There, there, there's got to be some sort of insecurity she's dealing with, some sort of emotion she has with the Third, her co-king. I will never know what those are, but I can at least imagine how a humanity formed her and put her into the human form rather than fetishizing her and taking her out. And I'm going to say that I think that it's, this is a big thing for me to say. I'm not trying to call my whole discipline racist, but I am saying that fetishizing these kings is acting as an apologist for these authoritarian regimes. And it's also removing these kings from humanity itself. No wonder we have shows on the History Channel that talk about the pyramids being built by aliens when we ourselves perfect them in this way. So again, there's a lot more I could say here, but this idea of how do we know what we know? Well, we don't know anything. We know the story they want us to know. And if that's the story they want us to know, what else might be happening? And that's where I'm going to step in and say, well, what about this? What about that? What about this other thing? And try to understand how this is all working. Well, and I really like that you brought up this idea of the humanity and um, that as an underlying principle, because I think it's very easy to fall into this trap of, you know, this is a different culture. This was thousands of years ago, totally different religion, lifestyle, everything else. But at the end of the day, people are people. And I think that's something that you and I have talked about a lot. That's something I'm very interested in is we as humans react to our world and construct meaning in specific ways throughout time, right? So I'd be interested in you discussing what parallels you see, especially when you're talking about what the official story is, you know, in the last few years, there's been a lot of discussion of, quote unquote, fake news, you know, um, what is real, what is the media feeding us, what is actually happening, what is reality, that kind of thing. And I'd love to hear your take on what parallels you see 
between thousands of years ago and today, especially in some of our modern authoritarian regimes around the world. Yeah. You know, people will say, oh, well, why did the Third invade Syria and have this great big battle in Megiddo? What was this all about? And he'll tell us it's because the gods willed it and because he was able to do it and Amun Re should defeat everyone. Now, we have this ideological reason why he's invading, the gods have willed it, but you can also look at it and clearly say, oh, he's going to be making a whole lot of money. Um, there's there's other reasons behind it. Uh, there, there are lots of things that you can that you can feed into a given story. But let me also just say, when we ask ourselves questions in the modern world, like, why did we have the second Gulf War? Why did why did George Bush in, invade Iraq? What were these weapons of mass destruction that weren't there? And that was the reason that we were given to go. How much did money have to do with it? How much was Blackwater and Halliburton associated with it? How much were arms deals associated with it? How much was oil money associated with it? And historians still do not agree on what the answer for that war is. It's because he was upset that his dad got beat in the first Gulf War and he had to finish it for him. How much human emotionality is there at play? Are all of these things not mutually exclusive? The very fact that we cannot figure out our own history and that we are constantly trying to keep our own innocence, to use James Baldwin's phrase, about our own possible misdeeds or things that have gone wrong, that, that we try to tell ourselves certain stories. The ancient people did exactly the same thing. The thing is, is that you can see it very clearly in the ancient world. You can see the text where Thomas the Third is saying, I am invading Megiddo because the gods have allowed me to do so. And you're like, oh, you roll your eyes and you say primitive ancient people, this is how they thought we would never do these things. And yet, when you look at our own recent historical record and you see how much we ideologize our own decision making and how we cleanse it and make ourselves innocent and tell ourselves certain stories that, oh, money has nothing to do with it, when money has everything to do with it, then we, we can see that everything is complicated and every human decision is complicated. But Egypt is that gift that allows us to see very clearly, oh, look at that man there with that weird headgear. And that weird thing he's holding and he's got a weird skirt that's sticking out. And you're like, that's a king. That's an authoritarian. You don't see the man in the business suit in front of you as the authoritarian because he's wearing what you might wear. And he looks like you. And it's hard for you to see the water in which you yourself swim. Egypt gives us that gift of being very different, strikingly different. So I can write about it and say, look, you guys, let me remind you, lest you forget, same approximate patriarchal system. Same social drive, same humanity, same complexity. Yes, we are a little more complex. Yes, we have more people. But many of the same conditions and agendas exist. And if we can see it better for Egypt and then apply it to ourselves, it might create some eyebrow-raising moments among us as we're all becoming rather awakened to the fact that the United States of America is indeed built on stolen land and enslaved bodies. And the more we can see that, clearly and admit it to ourselves, the better our decision-making might be rather than telling us ourselves apologist stories. But but I can't tell you how many people get, have gotten upset with me. I, I have been charged with, with colonialism or racism by writing about the ancient Egyptian kings in a non-laudatory way, by close colleagues, by close colleagues, that by criticizing these ancient Egyptian kings and calling them authoritarian. I am not allowed to do that because I am not Egyptian. This is not my government system. I shouldn't 
criticize somebody outside of my system and thus I'm not supposed to do that. So it's is a really interesting place that we find ourselves in that you know you can be called colonial for actually criticizing an ancient past because we identify so much nationalistically with that ancient past and it it can be um a very tricky path to walk. So it's it's complicated what you're asking. Where is the truth and what is it? Today and yesterday, yeah, good luck. That's what we do. That's history is always manufactured. And that's what we need to keep reminding ourselves. No, I love that. I think it can be easy to fall into that trap of, you know, you read something, it's written down, and thus that is the only narrative. And I think it that's not only true for history, but also modern times, right? We see that um, in news coverage, you know, I'm always trying to look at articles about the same incident from different news sources. And the even then, the narrative is very, very different. So I guess my next question would be, let's look then at our own culture and let's critique that. Why do we allow people such as, for example, Donald Trump, who very much cast himself as a self-made man, um, you know, someone of the people. And then when you look at the policies on the ground, some of them really didn't necessarily benefit the, the, the common people, if you will, and in fact, uh, were very much in favor of the elite few. Why do you think that we select these people or allow these people to rule, whether it's now or in ancient Egypt, when, you know, with some effort, it wouldn't necessarily be so difficult for the masses to take over, but we choose to give up our power to the few? Why do you think we do that? And, and why do we fall prey to those stories? I think it's very simple, rational behavior from a time of perceived crisis. The crisis can be real, the crisis can be perceived. And it only takes, in modern society, one could argue, some 20% of the population to shift a system towards authoritarianism, or for 20% of the population to feel quite um, adamant about needing to move back to a particular way of existing in society and to ideologize that such that they can get other people on board. So, you know, for today's circumstances, I would say that there is a, a there, there are groups of white people in the United States who have benefited considerably from structural racism and from the privilege the, that they have gotten by being white people and that they see in the United States as they become a minority in voting, in bureaucracy, in population as a whole, whatever it is, in the jobs market as women are moving into the, um, have moved into the, the workers um, group, though COVID really changed that a lot as well. Um, but as you find yourself becoming a minority, you might do many things that you would have considered unsavory before to keep that power. And you might say things more explicitly at a certain point that might be racist or or problematic or white supremacist, and you would say them because you don't want to lose that power. So in a country that's based on white supremacy and and white-facing systemic racism, it, it actually is quite rational for the working class white man of Pittsburgh or Wisconsin to go with Donald Trump because that is actually the side that that he has benefited from thus far. And I see your point, but what if they take away his health care? What if they take away his social security? What if all of these things happen? 
if you perceive this crisis in a, as a zero-sum game in which these things will not be available for much longer anyway, then this is generally the way things work. I mean, you and I have seen this in education. And here we are at UCLA with what is so-called public education, but which was gutted as soon as women and people of color could join. UCLA was cheap and subsidized and practically free for the white males of this century, the past century. And as soon as women and people of color could join, then we make it more expensive. The legislature doesn't fund it anymore. And that is the reality that we're currently dealing with. So it's um, it's essentially that that rational ruling minority saying, oh, you're going to make our schools serve everybody. Then I'm going to go to my ideological religious school and I'm going to make the government pay for that unless we have school voucher discussions. Right. So it's what I want to caution here is that though the ideology can seem like fake news and can seem like it's all a bunch of lies and can seem like it's a cover up, the ideology is just a way to cleanse, in my opinion, what is actually a very rational social and economic behavior on behalf of a ruling minority that wants to keep its power. And it's a way of cloaking it, a way of hiding it, so that you can talk about Jesus and evangelical code words when it's actually code for a white supremacy way of living in the United States. And given that so much white supremacy has been enacted through white evangelicalism, particularly in the American South, but not only, and now I would say white Catholicism, um, traditional Catholicism in some ways, uh, you can use these things to say what you cannot say, to have power that you want to have, to impose births on women, to um, impose working conditions on people and not let them strike, all of these things. But you will bring God and religion into the mix and make things more theocratic in your discussion. But it's still, in my opinion, a, a rational socioeconomic way of going about it. Also note that while people like to talk about things in terms of money, they often don't like to present politically their agendas in terms of money because it seems crass. It seems uncaring. It might open up people looking at their own dealings with money. Are, is this politician investing? What do we know about the American Congress? As soon as you become a member of Congress, you become a millionaire within a year or something. It's ridiculous, right? So you know that there's an economic incentive for people to become a politician and win one of those seats. But if you start talking about things too economically, then people will look into your own background, perhaps. So you must idealize everything, make it about um, these American values, which end up being code words for that unfair system that serves the very few. So most government, most politics, because you and I are laboring and though we may vote where you were just busting, trying to you know get as much done as we can, we're not out there protesting all the time. We're not out there in the halls of government trying to get what we want. It's the the 20% of elites at the top who are who are busting and, and able to really self-deal to lobby and write the laws themselves and write the laws that are made for them. And those laws will in fact benefit uh, the white voter in Wisconsin, um, no matter what his socioeconomic income um, in large part because of systemic racism, those systems are still in place. So I would speak to the rationality of this rather than the irrationality and just understand whether you see it in Egypt and they're talking about the god Amun Re, you know, knowing all things and speaking to the king, or you're looking at the American system and you see 
people using a political theocratic speak, that Christo-fascist, whatever we might call it, you and I, but they're using that those code words. It's it's a very rational way of keeping power for as long as they can and not letting it go to to others who will turn the system upside down. Yeah, it's really it seems like it's really about the stories we tell ourselves, right? Um, the narratives that we construct to make sense of our world in a way that benefits us. So I guess my next question would be, um, we've talked a little bit about it in general terms, but we see both here in the U.S. as well as in other places that these authoritarian systems tend to fit very neatly into the patriarchy. We see this as well in ancient Egypt. And so you know, maybe it's a little bit of speculation, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why these systems tend to really be firmly situated in the patriarchy. Why do they last for so long? And why are women only able to gain a foothold, at least in some circumstances, only because of a crisis or something like that? Yeah, patriarchy is really what it's all about, because patriarchy is the system in which the ancient Egyptians lived. It's the system in which the ancient Mesopotamians lived, though they had different systems, different kingships, different ideologies that does connect us and the patriarchy connects us to today. And it's so interesting to be able to be here 5,000 years later and to look back with your historical time machine and to see what the patriarchy has wrought and what, first let's, let's define it, right? So patriarchy in Greek is simply rule by the fathers. You could, you could understand it as rule by a masculine minority, rule by a masculine few over the women, over the children, over the mass of men. Patriarchy serves those few men at the top. Patriarchy functions through overt competition, hoarding of resources, hoarding of political power, control, monopolistic control of ideological sources, religion included, political ideology as well, and hoarding of the economic resources. So you're, you're trying to control all of those things and Capitalism is a part of the patriarchy, but communism is part of the patriarchy. Marxism is a part of it as well. Um, but the capitalist world that we live in, I mean, it's it's really interesting. You could think of it as like patriarchy on steroids, where we're all trying to work to the very last um, inch. And where does all of our the fruits of our labor, where does it go? But to the billionaires of our system, who are really the kings of our social system. So you know, people are like, we don't have kings. And I'm like, really? What does $300 billion in Jeff Bezos mean to you? What is What does it mean that somebody has that amount of control and can hire lobbyists who write laws for them that benefit them? And so the circle continues to go around. Now, here it gets really interesting because I think while I'm saying all of this, a lot of people are going, but wait, something's changing. Something's different. And here I want to push back where you said, why does patriarchy last so long? And here I'm going to say, how long has patriarchy been around? 5,000 years? 6,000? Should we push it to seven maybe? I mean, how, how many years? Uh, let's let's go to the, the first patriarchal regimes, the first kingships. I don't think we can go much, lo- much farther than six, six and a half K. Um, it's not that old. Even if we push it to 10 K, 10,000 years, it's a drop in the bucket for what humanity has been on planet Earth. For our, what, a homo sapiens sapiens, what, 250,000 years, we keep pushing it back. So let's give ourselves a quarter of a million years. And we have this apparent, strange, 
highly destructive time that we call patriarchy. And it is reaching, one could argue, its most baroque, most overwrought stages in which we have kings on earth who own like a quarter of the globe or or something like it's 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 rather ridiculous when you if you wanted to count out the number of people who own most of the resources compared to the 8 billion people we now have on our planet and it's all cracking it's all breaking we all feel it right and left wherever you go on this planet whether you're on the right side of things politically or the left side of things politically or somewhere in the middle i think right now everyone agrees that we are standing on the edge of a cliff and that we are about to fall into something we know not. It's why each side is is so bewildered. It's why the right is fighting so hard, saying, go back, we have to go away from this cliffside. It's why people on the left are like, let's hold hands, sing kumbaya, and jump off together. But we we all know that there is something coming. And here's where it gets really interesting. At the top of society, it's the patriarchy through and through. If you look at the Fortune 500 companies. Uh, you know, in the United States, and you see who who's a CEO. It's all those white men, and we're talking about I would say six percent. You could look it up. Maybe it's now seven female CEOs. I guarantee you, most of them are white and older, and serve the patriarchy in their way. So this this patriarchal system is there, embedded in the money, but things are changing in other ways politically in the United States. What we're at like twenty seven percent females in Congress. It ain't great. It's not 50% of the population. Never had a female president because direct voting does not like and is very hostile to the female in charge. Militarily, and at the bottom of the economy, things are getting different. The bottom of the economy, females are out earning males. Females are becoming breadwinners. Females are out earning college degrees. If we took away the affirmative action that we put at every private or high stakes R1 university that gives 50% of the spots to males. These these universities would all be like 80% female. That's what would happen. So if you're at a Cal State or some other place where they don't necessarily try to keep parity between males and females, then the females would, they would win because we do better. One could even argue biologically, but I would say socially as well, we are conditioned to do better sitting at our desks, test taking, doing all of these things that the patriarchy demands that we do like good little children don't make don't make a fuss, don't have ADD, get your work done. We do this very well. And we can earn equal scarce resources on our computer terminal to the guy who's much bigger and has more arm muscle next to us. So we're able to bring in those resources and we have decided as, as a block, I don't want to get married necessarily. I can't afford to have kids in this hyper-capitalist end-stage world. So I might have one, you know what? I might not have any. And as we're talking about it, I'm going to say, maybe I'm not even going to count myself female or male. Maybe I'm going to take this whole binary construct that is imposed on us by the patriarchy for ideological reasons and throw it away. And I'm going to start saying, oh, maybe I don't even fit in this. I, I feel that I'm a female who presents more masculinely, and maybe I'm going to call myself transgender. And here we get a really interesting part of the patriarchy, which is the ideological component which is wholly monopolized, one could say, by the hard right and by the patriarchy itself. Yes, there are some female pastors. Yes, there are some left-wing ideological systems out there. But really, that ideology that controls the patriarchy is a right-wing thing, is a patriarchally-led masculine thing. 
And there we get the imposition of the binary, the imposition that the female needs to have children. She needs to be a caretaker. She needs to be in the house. She needs to be a female. And the gay must be taken out or whatever it is. You know, we, we're going to beat out the gay. They can't be in the military, all of these things. And, and we find ourselves in a culture where capitalism is pushing us so hard that we're destabilizing the patriarchy itself through our labors at the same time that the patriarchy ideology is trying to push us back into the, the mold of, of what the agricultural regime was. But you and I aren't out there, you know, grinding grain that the men have brought in for us to, to make into bread and porridge. We're, we're not doing that. We don't have six, seven, eight children. We're not stocking the farms anymore. We're not stocking the farms with laborers and protectors anymore. We have a very different world that's based on technology that does not demand these kinds of feminine um, subversions and this kind of use of the child as a as a uh, place of labor and place of future children. Um, we're starting to talk about child sex abuse that is very much a part of patriarchy that happens within four walls and that is not discussed. Um, it happens within ideological spaces and domestic spaces. And now we're pushing against that. So there, we're talking about it openly, right? So we find ourselves in what I would call a human revolution. We've had an agricultural revolution. We've had an industrial revolution. I would say that we're in, still in the midst of a sexual or gender revolution. And in the midst of that, we are having an anti-patriarchal revolution. And so let's say you're like, oh no, the patriarchy is with us forever. We're screwed. There's nothing we can do. The system of inequality and hoarding is there forever. And I will say there is a hard stop. There is a clear hard stop and it is provided by the planet on which we find ourselves. Let's go back to a little geographic determinism because I, I, I'd love to throw in that we are 8 billion people on a planet that is not getting bigger. And yet patriarchies demand increasing growth. Talk to any economist and they will tell you, we need growth. It's all about growth. We can't continue without growth. And yet growth is exactly what will destroy us. It is exactly what will make humanity extinct on this planet, along with every other higher mammal species and a whole lot of other species to boot. So the hoarding and the destruction that we impose on this earth so that Jeff Bezos can have another billion dollars or whoever, whatever Saudi autocrat can have another billion dollars and add it to the bank account of digital ones and zeros doesn't even exist this money um how how are we to continue in this way and the answer is we can't we won't it's it's where we find ourselves in this place where it's like oh my god we have to create something sustainable we can't keep with the plastic single servings we can't keep with the petroleum economy we have to do something else it's all going to break and human beings as we both know only change when they have to and that's where we find ourselves. UCLA is the same place. UCLA, we just went through the strike. 50% pay increase for all of the TAs. We all know that they need it to live in the city of expensive rents and high cost of living. And yet no budget has been allocated for it. And we're all waiting to see what's going to break, to blame and say, oh, that's what needs to be fixed. But we're waiting for something to break before we fix it. Because the system is unwieldy and too big, that's what collapse is. Collapse is the breaking of certain institutions, they structurally will not function anymore. And when they break, people all go in a tizzy, people die, bad things happen. 
wars happen, and things become restructured. And I don't know what's going to happen because the biggest revolution that we saw before this is the agricultural revolution. And this is this is your time period too, Rose. You know that the human suffering that went between the that was a part of the Neolithic, the late Neolithic, was extreme. The signs of human competition, according to some scholars, and I know there is debate here, are extreme. What do we have? Maybe with our technology, it'll be different. But what do we have to look forward to as we work towards the end of a patriarchal structure that will take centuries to play itself out? How how are we to understand this? How are we to see this? Because what we have been doing for the last couple of hundred years is replacing one patriarchal system with another. You replace a kingship with a parliamentary system, and you replace that with a communist system, you replace that with a socialist system, and you replace that with whatever, a a capitalist, oligarchic, corporatocracy. But none of it's going to change the patriarchy as it really works in terms of its hoarding, destruction, um, competition. What is going to come after? What are we going to be forced to make? That there, I don't know, but it's kind of crazy that Egypt and its long durée can help you see something like that with more clarity than you would otherwise, if I were like an Americanist, you know. But to be an Egyptologist and to see the crises that they've gone through and how they last 250 years, those intermediate periods where we talk about between the old kingdom, the middle kingdom, between the middle kingdom, the new kingdom, the Bronze Age collapse. These are big moments where government systems stop working. And how do people build something new? They're doing this so within the patriarchy, but they're doing so with extraordinary breaks, extraordinary crises, and movements of people. That's where what we do can become really, really helpful looking ahead to what we have to go through next. Thank you. That's a great way to tie that up. And I think really emphasizes these connections that we might not necessarily see from thousands of years ago in a a different culture. Well, thank you so much, Kara, for joining us. This was such a rich and interesting and I think very timely discussion. And thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Oh my God, it was so much fun. Thank you, Rose. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. You can learn more about our work or share your thoughts with us at our website, luskincenter.history.ucla.edu. Our show is produced by David Myers and Rosalind Campbell with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.